first reading this evening is from Matthew chapter 5. That's on page 968 of the Church Bibles. Page 968. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The second reading reading this evening is from the first letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians. That's page 1186. One Thessalonians chapter two on page one one eight six. Verses 11 to 16. 1 to 16. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses. And so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. 
The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tim's going to come and preach and I'm going to pray for him. So shall we bow our heads and pray? We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Heavenly Father, we pray for Tim as he opens your word to us. Please would he preach for your pleasure to please you and not necessarily to please us. And would we be found as those who are listening and find pleasure in what gives you pleasure. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Thank you, Andrew. Sorry about the typo. Um, Regulars will know that next year, the 28th of February to the 6th of March, is a very special week in the life of St. Michael's with a whole series of special events being laid on, particularly for the benefit of uh, those who aren't yet members of St. Michael's, events to which we can invite friends to. And uh, I hope that uh, at the very least they are dates that are already in your diary. Um, We're being joined by Roger Simpson, who, if you were on the uh, church house party last year, you won't be able to forget. If you weren't at the house party, just let me tell you that we're in for an absolute treat. Um, Roger has a fantastic gift uh, of presenting the Christian gospel clearly, warmly, and compellingly. Um, These next eight months, and by the time everyone's had their summer holiday, it'll be about six months, five months, they're going to whiz by, uh, and they're really a time for us as a church to plan and prepare and and pray for, for this week. Because if the Christian message really is good news, if, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, that the message here is the word of God which is at work in you who believe, then this is just the most brilliant opportunity. And I do hope that we will really take it uh, as a church and as individuals with both hands. But I want you to imagine that we're jumping forward in time. It is now the 7th of March, 2016. So it's the day after this special week has ended. And uh, let's, let's look forward with tremendous hope. And let's say 50 people have become Christians during that week. I'm full of faith. Are you? Yes. Thank you for the nods. Um, 50 new Christians in St. Michael's. And let's just say that for some bizarre reason, we who are here now have all been spirited away elsewhere. And the, the 50 are left on their own. And we look at them and think, well, I wonder how you're going to survive, baby Christian that you are. Who's going to nurture you? Who's going to lead you? How's it going to work out? Well, this is exactly the situation in Thessalonica. Paul, as we remember from last week, had been there for three Sabbaths. He then got chucked out and moved on. And this baby church was left to survive on their own. How would they get on? Well, we saw in chapter 1 last week uh, that there was tremendous evidence for a genuine work of God in these young Christians They had turned, chapter 1, verse 9, they turned from God, sorry, I beg your pardon, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And Paul, who's been very anxious about the well-being of this little church, has sent Timothy to see how they're getting on, and when he comes back with the good news that they're 
They're going strong. He, he says, chapter 3, verse 8, For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. And yet, at the same time, these Thessalonian Christians are being told by others that Paul is a, is a charlatan, that he's abandoned them. He doesn't really care for them at all. That Paul is simply a sort of traveling religious salesman who's trying to build his own reputation and take what money he can from his hearers whilst he's about it. And these Thessalonian Christians might well have been tempted to think, first of all, is this really true, this Christian message? And secondly, is it worth it as they face up to all sorts of opposition? Is it true and is it worth it? And I think those are two questions that probably, if we're honest, we ask ourselves from time to time. And certainly our friends who wouldn't call themselves Christians are asking that as well. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, this passage we've just read, Paul reminds them of his visit. And he says, yes, it is true. And yes, it is worth it. And no, Paul wasn't out to con them. And I want us just to look at Paul's ministry strategy this evening and to notice his tremendous integrity as a Christian minister. And as we look at Paul and how he went about his work to ask ourselves, how do I relate to my unbelieving friends? How do I care for younger Christians? Do I ever talk about Jesus Christ with my friends who wouldn't call themselves Christians? And if I do share the good news, do I do so out of love for them or out of a sort of grim duty because I get harangued about it every now and again at church? I heard this week of one student who was in, uh, invited to hear a talk who asked their friend this question, I think it's a very perceptive question. Do you love me because you want to convert me? Or do you want to convert me because you love me? Do you love me because you want to convert me? Or do you want to convert me because you love me? So let's look at Paul's ministry and see what we can learn for ourselves from him. The first thing um, he highlights here is, is Paul's courage. Verse 2, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Paul, just before he'd been to Thessalonica, had been in Philippi. If you remember, he'd been dragged across the town to face the council. He'd been thrown in jail. He'd been asked to leave the city. That's the end of Acts chapter 16. And then Acts chapter 17, the very next thing, after leaving Philippi in disgrace, he heads to Thessalonica. Now, I don't know what you would do if you had just been in jail for being a Christian, having been beaten up. You're a well-respected Jewish rabbi that Paul was. You've been released finally. I think probably most of us would say, time for a little sabbatical. Time for a holiday in the sun. And maybe a sidekick friend might say to us, do you know what, I've just seen there's a rather nice cushy job in the 
University of Jerusalem. Why don't we head back there? It was all a bit calmer when we lived there. But no. Paul goes to Thessalonica, preaches, people become Christians, and the res- after that, the mob appear again. And the heavy brigade move in, and there's a riot. Paul, would you mind leaving Thessalonica? Off he goes. Where does he go? He goes to Berea. What's he do in Berea? He finds the synagogue. He preaches. People become Christians. There's a riot. He's asked to leave. Do you, do you see there's a little pattern developing here? And that's how it was for much of his ministry. Frankly, that's the pattern throughout most of Christian history. We happen to be, I think, probably coming to the end of a period of relative uh, peace for Christians where we've been able to live fairly, uh, it's been fairly socially acceptable to be a Christian, but I think probably the tide is turning. And, of course, in many parts of the world, people are outwardly hostile to Christians. To be a Christian does not earn you promotion into the premier league of popularity. On the contrary, to be a Christian is often to invite opposition, hostility, and accusations of bigotry, and indeed, in many parts of the world, persecution. And Jesus said to his disciples, when that happens to you, rejoice. Because that's what happened to the prophets. That's what happens to me, Jesus, and it's going to happen to you. So A, don't be surprised, and B, uh, if it happens, you're in good company. You're not alone. But where does Paul's courage come from? Because frankly, although we know that prophets and Jesus were persecuted, it's still tough. Look at verse 2 again. We'd previously suffered and been insulted, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. It is strangely comforting that even Paul needed a special dose of godly courage. Even Paul couldn't do this on his own. He needed courage from God. Even Paul would ask fellow Christians to pray for him. And specifically, he asked the Ephesians to pray uh, that he would have courage to deliver the message. I think probably all of us at times are tempted to water down the message or perhaps to say nothing at all. I remember uh, when I was at university, we had a, a week of special events and I had this invitation in my hand and I was going around to see a friend. I got round to his door and I could hear voices the other side of the door and I thought, oh no, I'm not sure I can go into a room full of people. I could perhaps face somebody one-to-one and I looked down at my invitation and I noticed it was shaking like that. I couldn't quite work out why. Anyway, I went back again and uh, this time there was laughter in the room. So I thought, well, they're obviously in high spirits. If I go in with my strangely shaking invitation, they're going to laugh at me, obviously. Anyway, eventually I went round and found him on his own. And joy of joys, great surprise, he actually accepted the invitation. But the temptation to do nothing was quite great. This week of events that we've got next February and March will be a failure unless we pray. And we pray for courage. 
I should think if Roger Simpson was here, he would say, please pray for him to have courage. Just because you're used to standing on your hind legs and spouting doesn't mean that you don't, you're not tempted to, to, to water down the message. So pray for Roger. Pray for ourselves that we will have courage to invite people, that we'll pray for our friends. Paul says to the Thessalonians, our visit was not a failure. You bet it wasn't. Even though they copped it, they had courage from God. The second reason that Paul's visit to the Thessalonians was not a failure was because of his openness in verses 3 to 5. Several times in this passage, Paul says, you know. Verse 1, you know our visit was not a failure. Verse 2, as you know. Verse 5, you know we never use flattery. Verse 9, surely you remember Verse 11, you know that we dealt with you. He's appealing to their knowledge of him. Do you remember how it was when I was with you? These people are calling me a charlatan. They say that I'm on the make. They say that I'm a con artist. Verse 3, they say I've got dodgy motives and I'm trying to con you. Verse 5, they say I'm flattering you with smooth talk and whilst I'm about it, I'm trying to empty your wallets to fill my coffers. It's actually very hurtful when people say completely untrue things about you. Especially when you think of the comfortable life that Paul had, relative comfortable life Paul had given up in Jerusalem as a rabbi, and the kind of new life he'd embraced as a traveling preacher, beatings, prison, shame, disgrace. So Paul, he's quite open with these Thessalonian Christians. He says, you know that it wasn't a failure. You know that we dared to tell you the gospel. You know that we never used flattery. And you are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were. Others may say all sorts of scurrilous things about us, but you know what really happened. And the key verse here is in verse 4. On the contrary, We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul is a trustee of this message. And all that concerns him is that he should please God. He's not bothered by the opposition Well, perhaps he is bothered by the opposition, but he's more bothered by the fact that one day he wants to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So Paul gets on with this task, chapter 2, verse 2, in spite of strong opposition. And perhaps it's a good question to ask ourselves, whose opinion of me matters more? God's opinion or the opinion of my friends? I guess we'd probably say, of course we know it ought to be God's opinion, but when push comes to shove, we're often worried about what our friends think. And perhaps we say nothing. Perhaps we're tempted to water down the gospel. I think there are perhaps two dangers here, to to water down the message. So we say, well, you know, Jesus loves everybody. That's what he's really about. And never mention anything about accountability 
or judgment, or as Paul does twice in these opening chapters, the fact that the wrath of God is there. Or we mention that Jesus is a saviour and a friend, but we never mention that Jesus is also the Lord. He's the King of kings, and we are to obey him and follow him. So we, one temptation is to water down the gospel. The other temptation is to sort of put an extra gloss on it. And so we say things, we, or we can be tempted to say things like, well, become a Christian and basically all your problems are solved. Sometimes here people say, you know, there'll be, there'll be no more illness. There's perfect health. Or there'll be no more financial worries. Life will be all sunshine and smiles. And it sounds very attractive, and we say it because we want people to become Christians, which is a good motive, but trouble is that it's just not true. So when trouble comes, people understandably feel that they've been conned. And often they give up because we've given them a phony gospel that's been given an extra gloss. The fact of the matter is that, as Paul says here in verse 4, we have been entrusted with the gospel. Let's just remind ourselves of just some of the key, brilliant things about the Christian gospel. That our sins have been forgiven. That as a result, we can therefore have peace with God. That he has given us his Holy Spirit, which means we are never alone. And wonderfully, Whatever life throws at us, we can look forward to heaven with him, perfectly with Christ. Now, that's a pretty good package, isn't it? I don't think we need to sort of burnish it with false promises or water it down. The big question, though, for us is, am I going to be a faithful trustee? This week of events, next February and March, will be a failure unless we ourselves are clear on what the good news is and is not, and that we're clear that God has called us to share it. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. Paul was very open with these Thessalonian Christians. Third reason why Paul's visit to Thessalonica was not a failure was that he cared for people. This is verses 6 to 8. And Paul here uses the analogy of the nursing mother. Now we know that it's a a, a rather underrated job, the young mother. And no one's going to congratulate the young mother in the the early mornings after she's had a a shocking night, been woken up several times by her crying baby. No one's going to say, great nappy change. That was a real, that that was a wonderful job you've done there. And as the the nursing mother turns up at a party in her posh frock and suddenly as she walks through the door and notices milky vomit on her shoulder, uh, no one's going to say, well, well done for being a great mum. It's an underrated job being a mum. It's unglamorous, but it's absolutely vital. The baby is going to die within a few hours if if the mother does not do her job of nursing the child. And like a nursing mother, Paul is saying, we need to give time and care to our friends. So verse 7, we need to be gentle 
with people. We need to love them, verse 8. Sometimes I think we can be so keen to get the truth across to people that we can perhaps be a bit strong or abrupt or maybe we're so wanting people to walk with Christ that we can be overly controlling. It's easy perhaps to be a bit harsh. And crucially, as we seek to share the good news, we must be like this gentle mother here in verse 8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. The mother doesn't actually need congratulation because she loves her baby. And whatever, whatever other people think, she thinks, that baby comes first. I love it so much, I'm going to put myself out for this child. And she doesn't at the end of the day saying, great job I've done there. Our week of events next February and March will be a failure if we try to harvest without sowing. And like nursing mothers, we need to sacrifice ourselves for other people and invest in people. We need to love them. We mustn't just see people as sort of potential targets. Or this is a kind of big recruiting exercise for St. Michael's. No, we have good news we want to share. And if we love people, we will share it with them. The fourth reason why Paul was so effective and his visit to Thessalonica was not a failure was his behavior, verses 9 and 10. Paul and his companions were absolutely sincere, and that's why they spoke with such authority. People could see that what they said was backed up by the kind of lives they led. So Paul could say, verse 10, not just you are witnesses, but so is God. That's quite a claim, isn't it? They demonstrated the beauty of a holy life. Now, I think that one, one of the big lies of the devil is that there's something rather unattractive about holy people. You know, the sort of monk shut away in his cell. Rather boring, austere, remote, completely disengaged from society. We want to have fun. And the holy person just says, thou shalt not. But actually, when you think about it, Jesus was the only person who's ever lived a perfect life. And Jesus is still an incredibly attractive person. Even people who wouldn't call themselves Christians like the character of Jesus. As we speak, seek to speak for Christ, we should be seeking to live for Christ as well. This Christian behavior, this holiness, should be seen in how we work. Verse 9, he mentions their toil and hardship. It's very practical. And a godly life, a holy life, will be seen in how we behave at work, how we relate to our colleagues, whether we're the reliable sort of person who, when someone asks to do a job, we get it done, helping a colleague who's struggling with a deadline, Staying up late to finish the job. Going the extra mile. 
This Christian behaviour, this holiness, is also seen in how we live, verse 10, holy, righteous and blameless lives. Very practical things in how we use our homes, how we use our money, what we say about people when they're not there, how self-controlled we are in all sorts of different ways, how we use our free time for self or for others, holy, righteous and blameless. If we're not noticeably different, then people won't listen to us. They say, well, what difference does it make to your life? It's interesting that in the New Testament, there's a lot about behavior and holiness and comparatively little about evangelism. And I think that what, it's, what this is saying to us is that what people are wanting to see is, does this actually work in practice? Has it made a difference to your life? And when people see a holy righteous and blameless life they're drawn to the person of Jesus that it's meant to reflect our week of events next February and March will be a failure if our lives are so compromised that we become invisible the fifth and final reason why Paul's trip to Thessalonica was not a failure was because of the constructive advice he gave Paul switches here from the, this is verses 11 and 12, constructive advice. Paul switches from the nursing mother to the caring father. Having been gentle and restrained, here he's perhaps a little bit more positive and maybe more proactive. He uses the, the words, verse 12, encouraging, comforting, urging to live lives worthy of God. See, Paul's concern was not just to see converts. He wasn't out for a quick fix. Let's have a sort of pop-up church in Thessalonica. He wanted to make disciples. He wanted to see these baby Christians grow in faith. That's why much of this letter is saying things about his concern is almost his kind of agony for them. Are they they surviving? Have Have they kept going? And he uses these three words, and I think there's a sort of progression here. Encourage. Do come along. Come with me to church. It'd be lovely, lovely if you came. Do come to this event. I'd love to do just for starters with you. Would you like to read the Bible? Or comforting, perhaps standing alongside people. You probably know that comfort comes originally from the, the, the Latin cum fortis, with strength. So sort of putting your arm around somebody saying, come on, let's go. Being a genuine friend, meeting up regularly with someone, praying for them consistently, comforting, and then urging. I think um, the, the, the image I have most clearly of urging is, is the rather overenthusiastic parent on the touchline who's getting a bit carried away whilst his son plays rugby. And he says, come on! And he shakes his fists at the referee and all the rest of it. But urging is, is perhaps in the Christian arena, is, is, is a, perhaps a gentle challenge, maybe about a, a lifestyle issue or about priorities. We're told to uh, spur one another on to love and good works. And perhaps that's a similar sort of thing. You know, a spur, you know, the cowboys had spurs in there boots, sticking the sharp thing in the side of a horse to get it moving. That's how we're, a little bit of that in the, in the Christian arena. 
Not because we're trying to score points off each other, but because we love each other so much. We want to spur each other on. Paul here is not advocating strong-arm tactics. But he is saying we must take discipleship seriously. He wants to see not converts, but disciples. And in fact, to use the phrase that we've often used here, he wants to see disciple-making disciples. Because this Thessalonian church needs to reproduce itself for the next generation. And the next generation... And as people keep saying, there's nothing automatic about the survival of the Christian church. Each generation needs to reproduce itself. It's always one generation from extinction. And discipleship, serious discipleship, will make that happen. Not extinction, the survival. (laughs) So perhaps I could just ask you, when you first became a Christian or you were a young Christian, did somebody look after you? Did somebody perhaps meet up with you, pray with you, prayer partner? Someone read the Bible with you? Who could you look out for now? Or if you'd regard yourself as a a baby Christian, is somebody doing that with you? And if not, why not ask somebody? That's what we meant to do over coffee, isn't it? Spur one another on. Our week of events next February and March will be a failure unless we carefully look after and nurture young Christians. We don't want flash-in-the-pan converts. That's not what we're about. We want long-term, lifelong disciples. Paul's mission to the Thessalonians was very brief. He was there three weeks, but it was very effective. And I think it was effective because he showed these qualities. Courage, openness, care, godliness and constructive advice what a great role model for faithful christian ministry for us today let's pray father we thank you for the example of paul and we pray that we like him would most of all seek to be people who please god and not other people first we pray that we would lead godly lives that attract people to the lord jesus but most of all may your glory be our highest concern we ask this for jesus sake amen